For I, the Lord, will to retain a stronghold in the land of Kirtland, for the space of five years in the which I will not overthrow the wicked, that thereby I may save some. Hey listeners, this is Brendan from Book of Mormon Central, and today's podcast addresses the question, why did the Kirtland Safety Society fail? In a revelation given to the elders of the church through the prophet Joseph Smith on September 11th, 1831, the Lord promised to preserve Kirtland as a stronghold for the space of five years. In those years, the church in Kirtland grew and flourished, culminating with the dedication of the Kirtland Temple in March of 1836, an event that was accompanied by many divine manifestations and profound spiritual experiences. By this time, the church had accrued significant debts, both from the construction of the Kirtland Temple, as well as various business endeavors. After the dedication of the temple in the spring, Joseph and other church leaders turned their attention to both alleviating these debts and also building up Kirtland's economy. Compounding these challenges, many saints who migrated to Kirtland were poor and in desperate need of economic opportunities. Church leaders were looking to provide for these saints and pay off the debts at the same time. Over the summer, Joseph and other church leaders were engaged in various efforts designed to grease the wheels of Kirtland's economy and also to resolve the church's debts. However, these efforts were often complicated by other prominent members and leaders who established competing businesses and bought up land, driving up the real estate prices and then seeking to turn a profit. On September 12th or 13th, 1836, Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Hiram Smith, and Oliver Cowdery returned from their trip to Salem, Massachusetts with a clear sense of direction to establish a bank and acquire land as a solution to the church's economic problems. In the 1830s, banks could acquire capital in the form of hard currency gold and silver coin, land deeds and other assets, as well as land deeds and other assets. They then issued short-term loans in the form of bank notes, which were essentially debts that could be exchanged at the bank for hard money, coins, land deeds, and other assets. If the institution issuing the bank notes was trusted and respected in the community, their notes could be exchanged between individuals as actual currency. Thus, banks enabled frontier economies like Kirtland's to transform non-liquid assets, such as land, into liquid assets, such as banknotes. By September 14, 1836, the firm of Smith, Rigdon, and Cowdery was already acquiring property and other assets intended to be used in their banking endeavor. About a month later, people were purchasing stock in this yet-to-be-formed bank. Then on November 2, 1836, some of the Brethren of Kirtland came together to officially organize a bank institution, came together to officially organize a banking institution, which they called the Kirtland Safety Society. They named six people as a committee of directors, Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith Jr., Frederick G. Williams, Reynolds Cahoon, David Whitmer, and Oliver Cowdery. The next two months were spent addressing logistical issues, such as procuring plates for printing banknotes, constructing a building from which they would operate, and trying to obtain a banking charter from the Ohio legislator. State-issued bank charters provided assurance that an institution was legitimate and provided some backing should it fall. But it was not uncommon at the time for many financial institutions to operate without a charter. Laws relating to unchartered banks were relatively new and were not tested in court. As first constituted, the Kirtland Safety Society intended to operate as an official state-chartered bank. Due to a variety of circumstances, including the political maneuvering of the saints' enemies, they were unable to obtain a charter from the Ohio legislator before they opened in January 1837. So instead of being a chartered corporation, they reorganized as a joint stock company, what one might call today a general partnership, and began issuing banknotes January 9th of 1837. 
It was not uncommon for new banking institutions to operate for a brief period before obtaining a charter in order to demonstrate the institution's viability to the state legislators. This seems to have been the intent of the Kirtland Safety Society, as they continued to pursue two different avenues for procuring a charter after opening. First, they made a second attempt with a state legislator, which got voted down on February 10, 1837. This is unsurprising, since only one bank's application was accepted by the state of Ohio that entire year. That same day, Joseph Smith and others were meeting with the officials of the Bank of Monroe in Michigan to initiate their second strategy for gaining a charter. Ohio recognized the legitimacy of banking charters from other states, which allowed out-of-state banks to establish branches in Ohio. Joseph and officers of the Kirtland Safety Society were essentially seeking a merger. Their business association would purchase a controlling interest in the stock of the Bank of Monroe, and the Kirtland operation would thus become a branch of the Michigan Chartered Bank. To accomplish this legally, independent lawyers drafted a new partnership agreement, which was signed and published. As part of the deal, Oliver Cowdery was made director and vice president of the Bank of Monroe, and was authorized to sign banknotes that were used as currency on the credit of the Bank of Monroe. Thus, with its charter issues and the accompanying rumors of its illegitimacy legally and effectively resolved, the Kirtland Safety Society seemed poised to bring the much-needed economic relief to members of the church in Kirtland. Unfortunately, outside factors instead led to its demise, and the Kirtland Bank officially closed its doors in September 1837, which left its 32 partners and directors each individually and jointly liable for all of that branch's financial obligations. Several factors contributed to this eventual closure. Concerted attacks on the venture began, which were led by an unscrupulous competitor named Grandison Newell. Newell lived in a nearby Painesville, a neighboring town with aggressively competing economic interests and a hotbed for anti-Mormon activity and publications. Newell was directly involved in various business interests that would have been negatively impacted by any success of the Curlin Safety Society, so he took it upon himself to ensure its failure. Newell bragged that he personally bought up as many of the Kirtland banknotes that he could, probably paying less than face value, and then sought to redeem them for hard currency, thus depleting the Kirtland Safety Society's liquid capital reserves. In connection with this organized mobbing and run on the bank by Newell, Rumors were started that Kirtland Safety Society vaults were empty and that its officers were refusing to exchange banknotes for gold and silver coin, which was scarce. Although the rumors were likely unfounded since the validity of paper money of any kind has always been an act of faith, but the mere accusation was enough to undermine people's trust in Kirtland banknotes, not allowing the principals behind the society even a week or two to liquidate their assets in order to cover the issued notes that were now being surrendered. Then in February 1837, Newell used Samuel Rounds as a front for a lawsuit against Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and others as leading officers of the Kirtland Safety Society. The charges were brought on the basis of an 1816 Ohio law, which originally imposed a $1,000 penalty against any officers of an unincorporated bank. Half of that penalty could be collected by any informer who brought cases of such attention to the state. This 1816 law, however, had actually been superseded by an 1824 statute, which did not stipulate penalties for unincorporated bankers, but instead simply made the banknotes from such banks unenforceable in a court of the law. But instead, simply made the banknotes from such banks unenforceable in a court of the law. 
The clear effect of the 1824 statute was confirmed by an Ohio Supreme Court ruling in 1840. Joseph and Sidney's 1837 trial, however, preceded that ruling, and thus in 1837, there appears to have been some uncertainty about how the 1824 statute related to the earlier 1816 law. Joseph and Sidney's defense attorney brought up the suspension of the 1816 Act, as well as other important legal distinctions, such as the reorganization of the Kirtland Safety Society as a joint stock company. But the jury ultimately ruled in Rounds and Newell's favor. A $1,000 penalty was assigned to both Joseph and Sidney, half of which was rewarded to Grandison Newell, and the other half was to go to the state. The legal proceedings of this action unfolded over the course of most of that year, but by November 1837, Grandison Newell had collected more than he was owed, and he never forwarded half of the recovered amount to the state, thereby defrauding the state of Ohio. In the meantime, other events transpired to seal the fate of Kirtland Safety Society. The country's 1837 banking crisis hit Ohio and Michigan in February and March, and many banks were forced to close their doors, including the Bank of Monroe, the Kirtland Safety Society's partner. This unforeseeable national crisis could not have been more unfortunate for the fragile Kirtland economy. The merger between the Kirtland and Monroe financial institutions had briefly buoyed up the safety society, but when the Bank of Monroe closed, that financial relationship was severed, and Oliver returned to Kirtland. Understandably, disagreement and disaffection took its toll on many parts of the country, and some of the principal investors in the Kirtland Safety Society left the church and illegally drew their assets from that society. In June 1837, Joseph and Sidney resigned as officers of the financial institution and its assets, and business affairs were left in the hands of Warren Parrish and Frederick G. Williams, who had both disaffected for a time from the church. Accusations of forgery and embezzlement were directed at Parrish and others. In a letter published in the August issue of The Messenger and Advocate, Joseph Smith himself gave a notice to the saints and the public in general about the risks of doing business with the Kirtland Safety Society going forward. Given all this surrounding economic, personal, and legal turmoil, it is no wonder that the banking endeavor ultimately closed the doors. Despite these challenges, however, virtually all the deposits documented in 27 collection cases were ultimately returned to the Kirtland Safety Society investors. For some living in Kirtland at the time, however, this development was seen as evidence of the Prophet Joseph Smith's moral failings and a lack of prophetic foresight. They misunderstood the conditional nature of prophetic promises and thought the success of the venture had been assured, when, in reality, Joseph had only ever promised that if we give heed to the commandments of the Lord, all would be well. As Mark Staker noted, clearly Joseph Smith had not told his fellow believers that their efforts were failure-proof. Amidst all the chaos, the dissenters had apparently overlooked the impressive fulfillment of a prophetic utterance. When plans for starting a bank had been set into motion mid-September 1836, it was nearly five years to the day after the Lord promised, through Joseph Smith, that Kirtland would remain a stronghold for the space of five years. This five-year prophecy was not only a promise, but it came with an express warning. The Lord admonished that ye ought to forgive one another and not seek occasion against Joseph without cause. With the five-year stronghold period expired, the events involving the Kirtland Safety Society ultimately led to the temporary relocation of the leadership of the church to far west Missouri and the end of the Kirtland era of church history. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, visit bookofmormoncentral.org and click the Know Why tab.